0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: At one point, there's this sort of comical press conference. I believe it's with the, the Pentagon's spokesperson where, you know, one of these guys ends up in combat, right? And so there's a the question, are we sending troops into combat? And the spokesperson is doing this sort of awkward dance with saying like, well, no, you know, like we're not sending up sending troops into combat, but sometimes they end up in combat situations, Right. And by 2015, I'm at this event. There are, you know, there's a lot of three and four star generals in the audience. There are people from the NSC. I think Tony Blinken was there, actually. And there's also about a dozen severely injured troops, right? You know, we're talking about guys who are missing multiple limbs, guys who have experienced severe burns. And... Then Ambassador Rice says, is talking about the topic of the panel, which is you know, veterans issues. And she says, you know, this is important to us as an administration. One of our proudest accomplishments is ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And some of the audience, somebody in the audience goes, <clears throat> right? And it was this bizarre moment because it's like, who, who are you kidding? Like, are you trying to kid us or yourself?
0: everyone, this is A.J. Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Today, I am really excited to have on the show Phil Clay for his newest book, Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless, Invisible War. Phil Clay is a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps and the author of Redeployment, which won the 2014 National Book Award for Fiction. Uh, he also wrote Missionaries, which was named one of the 10 best books of 2020 by the Wall Street Journal. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, and elsewhere. He teaches fiction at Fairfield University and is a council member for the Arts in the Armed Forces. Oh, I Phil, was. Not anymore. anymore. Oh, <laughs> that, okay. that organization no longer exists. So. Oh, no. Well, I'll I'll cross that out on the back flap of the, the book then. Yeah. Well, how are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. And you know, I first came across your work in in the best way a few years ago. I was walking down a residential street in Washington D.C. and I saw a free little library. And I, you know, like the the tiny little yeah. boxes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I opened it up and I saw what was in there, and I saw redeployment. And I, you know, I took it out. I I read the the copy. I saw the National Book Award sticker that was on there, and I took it home, and um, I loved it. And um, it's probably you're you're the only author that I think that 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 is that I've continued to like be a fan of your work after pulling you out of a, a little free library. That's amazing. Yeah, um, and I think too. So we were talking before the show. This is episode. This I think this will be episode thirty. You're the first author I I think I've had on the show besides the debut authors where I've read all your books. Oh wow! So, yeah, so this is a uh, this is doubly cool for me. But uncertain ground. So really a, a terrific book, book of essays, very thought provoking. And and when I was writing down questions for this interview, I think this was this is probably a, one of the more challenging interviews I've prepared for because these these topics are so complex and there's such complicated issues which you know is why you probably wrote about them as opposed to <laughs> you know <laughs> just you know doing you know doing it, it some other way but maybe first to get us started here for uh, for the audience a question i like to start off with could you just tell us what is your book about
1: yeah so these are a series of essays that i wrote in between when I got out of the Marine Corps in 2009 and right after the fall of Afghanistan, right? So the the last essay in the book is about the fall of Kabul. And so it's my thinking through my own relationship to war. So I, I graduated from college in 2005 and went into the Marine Corps and i was a public affairs officer in iraq in 2007 to 2008 so during the surge you know there's this very politically contentious increase in troops and 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 shift in strategy counterinsurgency was all the rage we were doing population centric warfare and during the time that i was in iraq the violence level went down we left iraq feeling very good about what had happened and then I left the Marine Corps, started writing about war, writing fiction about war, uh, which, you know, tends to just muddy up the clean lines of your thinking in general. It's one of the benefits of writing fiction and trying to work my way through what I was a part of, what America looks like when you get back home, what the relationship is between, you know, Americans and the wars that they wage, American citizens and and veterans and how you talk about these things, and also what consideration of war sort of tells you about sort of deeper values, I suppose, would be the uh, four main buckets of um, subjects that I focused on. And the the, the book is organized, not chronologically, but more thematically, Uh, you know, citizenship, soldiers, writing, art making and 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 faith right is the final section and so it's me thinking about modern war how america shifted how it wages war and the, the kind of end point is 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 the fall of Kabul and me reflecting on that and on the beginning of all these things on the feeling that we had uh, after 911 uh, and what what that led to
0: yeah well before we kind of launch into um, some of the 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 ideas that you discuss in your book Um, maybe we just start a little bit about your background. Sure. So, so you, of course we've, you mentioned you were in the Marine Corps, you were a public affairs officer, but you write that you didn't come from a a military family.
1: No. What, What kind of family did you come up? Yes. My dad was in banking. He'd been in the peace corps. Uh, which is a little different from the Marine Corps. My mother worked in international medical aid for years, a family that was very interested in international affairs. My maternal grandfather had been a diplomat. My, my grandfather on, the, on my dad's side, he had, he had served in World War II. So uh, he was in the Army, never really talked about it. But I had, you know, grown up being fascinated by international affairs. I thought I was going to become a diplomat. Right when I was in high school, and I studied writing and history when I was at 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 uh, at Dartmouth College, and then we were in two wars. Very, you know, during that time, I, I went to college in September of two thousand one. Nine eleven actually happened when I was in the woods on the Appalachian Trail, um, and we sort of. You know, so I didn't get that feeling that everybody else had of watching their televisions in horror and and trying to figure out what was happening. We We were in the woods and we heard rumors, you know, people would be like, oh, somebody flew a plane into the World Trade Center. At first, we thought it was some sort of like weird joke that you tell people when they're away from civilization. And so when I emerged from the woods, the world was very different. We were very rapidly at war in Afghanistan. And then soon we were gearing up for war in Iraq. One of my older brothers had, had already made the decision to join the Marine Corps, uh, which probably set me off thinking about it as an option. And I ultimately decided if I wanted to serve my country, I should, I should join, the, join the military as well. And, and I picked the Marine Corps because they're sexier and better than all the other services. <laughs>
0: Well, what did your, what did your parents, you know, your parents aren't military people. What did your family think when, I guess your, <laughs> if your, your, your brother had already gone. So I guess like that softened the blow,
1: but yeah, what did they I mean, think? they were surprised. I don't think they expected it from any of us to be perfectly honest. You know, we, we, we weren't, well, that's, that's not entirely true because my, one of my younger brothers was very interested in the army and he was in junior ROTC, uh, he was five, he's five years younger than me. So the fact that he went into the army was not super surprising, but they didn't, they didn't see it from, from me or m- my other older brother who, uh, who went, I'm one of five boys. So there's, there's a bunch of us concerned, obviously, you know, uh, you don't as a parent necessarily welcome the idea of your children joining the military in a time of war. And, you know, my older brother's job ended up being a lot more dangerous than mine. You know, I was a public affairs officer, so it wasn't. You know, it's one of the safer jobs that you could do. But my second oldest brother, you know, he was a combat engineer. Uh, he was in Ramadi in 06, attached to an infantry unit. So, you know, it, it was not the sort of thing that as, as a parent, you would you'd welcome your child going into that circumstance, but nevertheless, proud of us. You know, my family very much believed in service, right? So I think they that was always impressed on us, service in a kind of broad sense, right? And an interna- and as I said, there was a real interest in international affairs. So it wasn't a huge leap. And, and I, you know, I'd, I'd gone to a Jesuit high school called Regis, where they, you know, very much focused on the idea of being men for others, on, on service as being important. And so the idea that after college we would want to do something that had some sort of service component, that was not surprising. I think just the fact that it was the Marine Corps was.
0: Yeah, well, this is a maybe a good segue then to talk about some of the stuff in your book because one of the topics that you talk about is um, the reactions that people often have when 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 they're told by somebody that they've joined the military, specifically like if they're like an Ivy League grad and they're like, "Oh yeah, I just you know I joined the military," people kind of treat it as like. I don't know if an anomaly is the right way to put it, but maybe let's just like start talking about how some of the, the perceptions that the public has about the military. This
1: is like a very, feels like a very Northeast specific thing, right? Where you'll encounter people. And I would sometimes encounter people where I was the first veteran they, they knowingly met, right? You know, this is after, you know, we'd already been at war for a decade. And there were people who would say to me directly, like, oh, like you went to a good college, like, that's amazing that you joined the military, you know, like, like, like you were somehow slumming it by joining the military or that this, you know, that if, if you had any other options, this wasn't something that you would do rather than <laughs> something that might be expected of someone during a time of war, right? The military is very geographically defined, right? There's certain regions that send a lot of people to the military. It's also increasingly a family business. A lot of people who go into the military have military family. Uh, in, in fact, actually, there's there was a recent, Ben Kesling is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, has an article about how in the wake of unsuccessful wars, uh, the military is finding a recruiting problem because older family members are not are sort of warning away some of the younger family members from uh, joining the military uh, for the fairly obvious reason that people who served in the past 20 years have less confidence in the leadership and the missions that they've been sent on uh, than in years past. So, yeah, so there's this this weird thing where in certain pockets of the country, military service is, is like, oh, it's like, it's like, oh, that's something for the peons right? Which is something I react against. Or there's this idea that it's like, oh, it's only what you would do if you have no other options. It must be only to get out of poverty. I remember a friend of mine was was talking about, he's, and he's, he's black, right? And, and not from a wealthy family. And there were sort of these like people asking him, sort of projecting on him that he had only joined the military because of, you know, the poverty draft or whatever. At a certain point he was like, no, 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 I wanted to join the Marine Corps since I was four years old. Right. And there was a sort of weird and uncomfortable and particular type of sort of racialized projection that was happening with, you know, uh, this is what you look like and this is your background. Therefore you joining the military must've been an act of desperation, not, not a choice or an act of patriotism or or service
0: yeah you're so right when you talk about the like the geographic you know differences uh with the military so i grew up in a very rural conservative part of northern indiana right and yeah and i grew up uh during the the iraq war Uh, so i was born in 1992 So I you're about, you're about 10 years older than me. I think you write it in your book so I can bring it up as you've given me permission to do. So like when I was growing up, you know, I was 10 years old when we invaded Iraq and in, in my community, you know, to go into the military was this extremely honorable thing to do. It was very idealized and it wasn't until later that I, I, I've lived in New York for a while. And I'm in Washington, D.C. now. It wasn't until later that I, I kind of got hip to some of these other perceptions of what it means to, to join the military and what service in the military to a lot of other people uh, actually means. So yeah, you're, you're so you know, right. I talk a lot
1: of, in the book about the sort of the civil military divide and this sort of sense of alienation that some people feel and the disconnect. And a buddy of mine, a special forces veteran who lives in a rural town in in Maine reached out to me. He's like, I read your book. And he's like, I liked it, but I don't know what you're talking about. Like in my town, like everybody knows somebody who served. I was like, yeah, in your town. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And it's, it's just a radically different, you know, one of these essays, people got very annoyed by one thing that I I quoted a friend of mine as saying, uh, the journalist in, in, in Iraq and Afghan vet, Jacob Siegel he admitted to me of having this kind of like instinctive recoil against men our age who didn't serve in the military and said, It's unfair, but I feel that. Who excused you, you know? Or another way of putting it that would be, Why did you think you had a choice? I know it's a volunteer army, but the volunteer army is a trick question, you know? You're supposed to say yes if you have any honor. And that's one view, right? That sub segments of the population feel. And then there's this other view it's like the military is what you do if 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 you're desperate or why would you join the military or there's something morally suspect in joining the military because look at what we've wrought look at the suffering and devastation overseas not only is it not something that you ought to do but it's something that you should be judged for having done right if you you know if you supported the war if you were enthusiastic if you wanted to be a part of it that's like a moral stain on your honor,
2: you know?
0: Well, let's, let's actually, let's talk about the Iraq war. So you, you write at the beginning of your book with Iraq and Afghanistan and kind of these forever wars, we've stopped paying attention for the most part as, as a country. And I think you're, you're right on here with this too. I mean, the 20th anniversary of Iraq just passed and it, it really, there wasn't so much made about it. Mm Mm-hmm. But talk a little bit about, you know, why, why you think we've stopped paying attention to,
1: to some yeah and we're, wars and wars we're,
0: wars. you know, gearing
1: up for different type of war. You know, the, the, the military is going through a sort of doctrinal shift and, and acquisitions shift to prepare for peer to peer conflict, right. You know, back to what the military feels more comfortable doing, preparing for fighting, you know, Russia or China or, or what have you. And but even during the wars, <laughs> there was that sort of lack of attention. I remember talking with a journalist in, oh, God, this must have been 2016, 2017. And he said to me, he said, you know, I just caught myself talking about Afghanistan as if the war was over. And I was just there, right? he like done a reporting trip, like maybe like a couple months before. And so one of the things that the book talks about is this sort of shift in how we started waging the wars, right? Because they were very unpopular, but particularly, you know, and I was writing a lot of this during the Obama presidency and, and, and right afterwards, there's, you know, this hugely contentious troop surge in Iraq, right? Uh, which people think of as successful, right? Certainly in the military. General John Allen once said to me, it was was the closest we came to victory, right? That's how it's thought of. And then there's this idea that we're going to do what we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there's this sort of (laughs) fight between the military and the Obama administration in the early days of the Obama presidency over the troop surge that obama is planning and then these troops go to afghanistan as part of a sort of limited troop surge that is just doomed right i I remember in 2009 being with a unit that was you know getting ready for deployment to afghanistan and i talked to this you know lance corporal like a young kid you know talking like, I don't know, 19, 20, 21 years old, something like that. And how are you going to be successful in Afghanistan? He tells me through cultural effectiveness, right? (laughs) You know, which is obviously him just saying what he's been trained to say, because, you know, this is the the idea. This is what we did in, in Iraq. This is what we're going to do in Afghanistan. And then, you know, that unit ends up going to Sangin, right? And just being in a tremendous amount of violence and, you know, the cultural and political and ethnic and religious and economic forces that you're all supposed to take into account and, and, and impact as, as a, you know, battalion commander, platoon commander, squad leader, you know, all of those are just converging on murderous hostility to American troops. And a lot of those troops, even at the time, no, as soon as we
2: leave this, this place is going right back,
1: right back to the Taliban. Right. And so that style of attempting to win these wars is quickly going out of fashion. But there's this sort of disconnect in, in in the American public where they they don't like the wars. They understand that they're not going very well. They understand that repeatedly promises have just totally failed to to materialize. Right, uh, the Iraq War was not over in six weeks. You know, or uh, certainly not six months or whatever it was, Donald Rumsfeld said. The initial insurgency in 2004 was not the last, you know, dying gasp of, you know, dead enders of the regime. The surge in Afghanistan did not ultimately succeed. You have the rise of ISIS later. So it's, a, it's a complex story. The surge in Afghanistan was a failure, a violent and bloody failure, ultimately. But at the same time, Americans, you know, the the reasons for this really don't like ISIS taking over uh, large swaths of Iraq. They are concerned about terrorism and, and all these other things. And so they want us killing the bad guys still. And what we start shifting to is an increase in use of drones, special operations forces, supervised trained and assist forces who are working with local forces, giving them not just training support but also air support. You know, there's this highly sophisticated kind of kill capture program that gets developed. The the uh, stat that I use in the book is you know in 2004 we're Special Joint Special Operations Command, which is, you know, like Navy SEALs, Ramis, you know, the high speed commando type troops. They're doing about 12 raids a month. By 2006, mid 2006, they're doing about 300 a month, right? Which is not because the Navy SEALs went to the gym and, you know, got on the treadmill and lowered their runtime and got faster. It's, it's because the whole way that we integrated intelligence and direct action units totally changed, right? and became a much, much tighter loop where we're fusing intelligence and operations in a way that is, as it, you know, uh, Gates, a former defense secretary says, is, is unparalleled in modern warfare, right? And and that style is something that we, you know, have applied to other places where, you know, the sort of intelligence targeting system is this incredibly lethal thing. And, and we're in Iraq and Afghanistan, special operations troops, American special operations troops are, you know, Pulling the trigger at the end of that targeting system or dropping the bomb from a drone. There are places like Colombia where we're assisting them with the targeting apparatus. And then it's Colombian troops that are, you know, dropping the bomb or, or pulling the trigger at the end of the day. And so there's a there's a whole variety of ways in which we have been able to have a lot of lethal effects with a limited troop presence, with a heavy reliance on technology, intelligence, special operations troops, and also drones, right? Which means that you have a lot less public exposure. You don't really have any embeds with special operations groups or with drones. You A lot of the stuff is sort of draped in in often more secrecy than is necessary. And it's relatively low cost compared to the sorts of way that we were fighting when I was in Iraq, right? But it's also much more distanced from the reality of what we're doing on the ground. And so uh, I'm sort of tracing that shift and my sort of moral and, and also just kind of practical military concerns with what this means long term for these regions and, you know, for what we're doing as a country in these places and 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 one of the things that that, that concerns me is it's it's this thing where you're able to continue doing violence with low political cost and low public exposure which means little accountability and it's very easy for things to sort of take on a kind of we continue doing this by inertia rather than because it's a good idea or because it's part of a coherent integrated plan for a region
0: yeah and you know one of the things that really stuck out to me that that's in your one of your essays so you write so i mean there's a lot of reasons i think that you give for why why people have have forgotten or aren't paying much attention to these these wars but one of them that i thought was super interesting you write uh, today we're still mobilized for war though in a manner perfectly designed to ensure we don't think too much about it And just thinking about how there's how war now is designed almost for us to to actually forget about you know Afghanistan and and Iraq, that that really struck me. Talk a little bit more about how 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 that that design is is so prominent. Well, we we, we've been explicitly asked to, right? I mean, I was I was at a event
1: in D.C. in two thousand fifteen where uh i was one of the, a group of people on a panel and we were introduced by oh god i think she was ambassador at the un then susan rice and and i i tell this story in the book and this is 2015 so this is well into the obama administration's campaign against isis now sort of famously Obama had ended the troop presence in Iraq. He ended the war in Iraq with great fanfare, right? And and this was part of his his sort of pitch as a candidate, right? That he was against dumb wars, right? You know, Iraq was the dumb war. Afghanistan was the more justifiable war because we'd been attacked. And he had a lot of backing from the anti-war movement within the Democratic Party, okay? And so he pulls troops out and then... And also doesn't really pay much attention or exerts much influence in terms of things that are developing politically in Iraq that are pretty negative, right, for the long-term future of the country. And this is a sort of complex story to be told about how things unravel. But ultimately, you have the rise of ISIS and this incredibly bloody, evil, genocidal, slave-taking organization is just taking over city after city and... and you know going over large swaths of Iraq and the Obama administration begins helping Iraq fight back against ISIS which is something that I support right you know if if ISIS is is, is advancing on Yazidi population and it would be a good thing to to drop some bombs and slow their advance and give the Peshmerga more time to move in you know Uh, All for it, because ISIS gaining control of the population means they murder everybody except for the women who they take in slavery and rape. And yet, the Obama administration does not want to admit that the war has started again, the war that they had ended. And the Obama administration, from the very beginning of the administration, had argued that the president has really wide latitude In terms of the use of military force, that there's a global battlefield that 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 uh, the president is 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 pretty unconstrained. And in when when they start fighting back against ISIS, instead of seeking for a new authorization for the use of military force, they argue that this is covered under previous congressional authorizations, right? The 2001 authorization, which you know was intended for Afghanistan, and you know ISIS obviously didn't. Exist in its in its current form as 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 an organization. Right then, it wasn't on anybody's radar. But because that authorization allows for fighting against Al Qaeda and associated forces, that came to mean almost anything. It you know currently means groups in Africa that have a you know limited connection to to the sort of terrorist movements that that authorization was uh, uh, intended for, and which have never done any strikes outside of their region. So they argue that the president has the authority to do this. And at the same time that they're waging this war, they're telling the American public that they're not at war. Right. And as they start adding special operators, they're putting, you know, American special forces, American special operators on the ground in Iraq, but they're saying, well, you know, we're not putting boots on the ground. Right. Cause you know, I guess special operators ride around on hoverboards and they, you know, at one point there's this sort of comical, press conference, I believe it's with the the Pentagon's spokesperson, where, you know, one of these guys ends up in combat, right? And so there's a the question, are we sending troops into combat? And the spokesperson is doing this sort of awkward dance with saying like, well, no, you know, like, we're not sending up sending troops into combat, but sometimes they end up in combat situations, right? And by 2015, I'm at this event, there are, you know, there's a lot of three and four-star generals in the audience. They're people from the NSC. I think Tony Blinken was there, actually. And there's also about a dozen severely injured troops, right? You know, we're talking about guys who are missing multiple limbs, guys who have experienced severe burns. And then Ambassador Rice says, is talking about the topic of the panel, which is, you know, veterans issues. And she says, you know, this is important to us as an administration, one of our proudest accomplishments is ending the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And some of the audience, somebody in the audience goes, right? And it was this bizarre moment because it's like, who who are you kidding? Like, are you trying to kid us or yourself? And uh, Obama said the same thing at a fundraiser, uh, not much later. So as we're radically amping up the amount of sort of military involvement, of the United States in the war against ISIS, the Obama administration is trying to trot out this line that the wars are over. And that is, I think, politically made sense, right? You want to tell the American public the wars are over, but we're still killing the bad guys, right? Which is what Biden said when he brought troops home from Afghanistan, right? The war is over, but we retain over the horizon strike capability, right? So the war is over, but the killing will continue. And it's, I think, a very unsettling thing to have politicians realize the effectiveness of telling people that we're going to continue killing people, but you need not consider it war and you need not concern yourself with it as an American
2: citizen.
0: Yeah, well, thinking about kind of the the disconnect between... Leadership in soldiers and veterans, and I'm really sorry. Actually, I, f- I meant to run this by you before before we came on. So, uh, if you if you can't do this, that's fine. But I was going to ask you to read a sure. passage from your book. Do you yeah. do you have the book? in oh, perfect. Well, it's on page 84. Yeah, and it starts with, you know, what is the saving idea of Iraq? Yep. Down just a little bit, and then just. Uh, reading until you get to the, the next paragraph, which says total mobilization. So okay, got all it. the way down until the next section, Sure, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, thank you. Sorry for springing this on you too. Uh, uh, pleasure. What is the
1: saving idea of Iraq? In some ways, joining the military is an act of faith in one's country, an act of faith that the country will use your life well. What your piece of a war will be, after all, is mostly a matter of chance. I have friends who joined prior to 9-11, when machine gun instructors still taught recruits to depress the trigger as long as it takes to say, die, kami, die. I have friends who joined after 9-11, expecting to fight Al-Qaeda only to invade Iraq. One friend protested the Iraq war, then signed up because he felt the war was unjust, and so we owed the Iraqis a humane, responsible occupation. The army sent him to Afghanistan twice. Another soldier I know, a reservist, had a unit slotted for one of two deployments, either to help with the Ebola crisis, a mission few would object to, or to man Guantanamo Bay. Depending on where they were sent, they knew they'd face radically different reactions when they came home. Of course, the praise or censure your average American civilian might dole out to those soldiers would in reality just be the doling out of the praise or censure they themselves deserve for being part of a nation that does such things. The difference, though, is that it's impossible for the veteran to pretend he has clean hands. No number of film dramatizations of commandos killing bad guys can move us past the simple reality that Iraq is destroyed, there is untold suffering overseas, and we as a country have even abandoned most of the translators who risked their lives for us. Yet this fact seems not to have penetrated either the civilians we come home to or the government that sent us. How many American presidents or members of Congress have suffered from PTSD or taken their own lives rather than live any longer with the burden of having declared a war
0: asked humanities professor Robert Emmett Meager None of course Yeah Well first of all thank you so much for that talk about those paragraphs and you know talk about what what Iraq has revealed about uh, us as a country and about our leadership and the, the disconnect between our leaders and our soldiers.
1: Yeah. So that is, uh, I started off talking about that and the idea of the saving idea in relationship to an essay by Pat Hoy about Vietnam. And there's this thing that I've heard from a lot of soldiers and you hear it from veterans of Vietnam. This a, You hear it from, from, veterans of our wars that we fought for each other right you, know, you sign up for whatever reasons and then you know in in, in the heat of combat and uh, it's 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 about the man or woman on on to the left or right of you right that you you love the people that you're with um you feel tightly bonded to them as a unit and that the meaning of what you did can be sort of set aside from the broader questions of the war, because, you know, if you behaved honorably, if you, you know, looked after your, your colleagues, that's, that's enough. And I think I, I understand that. And especially I understand that in the wake of a war that failed, right. But nobody joins the military purely to be in a situation where there's no broader goal than looking after the, the person to the left or the right of you right? You wouldn't put yourself in that violent situation in the first place for that. We, we want what we have suffered and risked to mean something broader. And, and that has a real bite when the country is failing to provide you that mission. And I think that ultimately it is the country that's responsible, right? I mean, the, the, the burden of those experiences risks the physical cost, the mental cost, the moral cost of being in, in, in the morally bruising battlefield, right? Those are all borne by the soldier, but ultimately it's not up to the 19-year-old joining the military to ensure while he's also you know, trying to learn how to man a machine gun or, you know, perform basic fire fireteam uh, capabilities that his nation is, you know, going to provide him with an adequate and moral and just and, and, and meaningful and achievable mission, you know, wherever they might send him. That's just that, that, that burden has to be a collective one. Right. And yet when, when the nation fails, as a whole, to provide that, you know, it's really, <laughs> it's really it only really felt very powerfully by the veterans in the audience. I mean, but by, by the veterans, there, there there was an event that I did with an Iraqi writer, and he felt very, I think, uncomfortable about being paired with me, right? Which I understood. Uh, the publisher had asked him. Uh, when he came to the to United States to do an event with an American author because he you know wasn't well-known, and they picked me because I was a more well-known writer about the Iraq War, which he had also talked about. But as, as an Iraqi uh, fiction writer, he had a very different response to a, a, an American Marine who served in his country, right? And at the event, he sort of... Uh, in the most genial way that you could compared me to a Nazi, right? Uh, And asked me how I could possibly feel pride for having, having served in, in Iraq, right? Given what had happened to his country, right? Which is, you know, a fair and pointed question. And I started to respond. He was like, oh no, you know, we can just talk about craft or whatever. And I was like, no, I'll, I'll give you a response. And I gave him a long response, which in some ways related to uh a lot of the things that I explore in that particular essay that I that I just read from, which is called Citizen Soldier. And after the event we had a you know had a beer and talked about it. But it was interesting because in the audience of people in New York who were interested in coming out and listening to this, you know, Iraqi author uh talk about his art and his short stories and, and Iraq and also the war, I think a majority of the audience were veterans, right? This is in New York. And was and and there was a discussion amongst us afterwards uh, about about his question, what it meant, and and you know it's it's easy to dismiss that kind of question when it comes from you know an American anti-war activist, right? It's very different when you're facing that that question from uh, from somebody like him. And yet, by that by that point in time you know it wasn't for the most part american anti-war activists were in the audience because they'd moved on to the next political thing in american life
0: well uh, first off i i don't envy you for being on stage and in being compared to a nazi <laughs> it was it was in the most genial way that you okay. could possibly compare someone to a nazi okay 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 it was... <laughs> <laughs> Cause I was going to ask how you would feel just kind of being up there and, and on the spot. But if it was, you know, if it was not like, you know, Phil, you are a Nazi, then I, I, I,
1: I, I, I sort of expected a, a question of that sort and I was glad to glad to do it. You know, I think it would have been, you know, there's a weird aspect of this where it's like, you know, go out and sell your book and Oh, here, we'll connect you with an American Marine cause that might help. But if you're gonna do that, like, you want to say your piece, and and I think it was totally fair for him to say his piece and ask that question, and and I I think it would have been the, the event would have felt much more false if we hadn't had that discussion.
0: Well, now you uh, initially you were a supporter of the Iraq War. Yes, maybe you. I don't know if that's. I'm not actually. I'll let you use your own words, but. Mm-hmm. And we talked a little bit about this before we we went on, um, but you know, I'm just curious, like what what were your reasons for supporting the war, and and if that has changed? Sure, um, I assume it has. <laughs> and you you did just say Iraq was a failure, so maybe you could just like talk about that initial support you had for the war and and how that's evolved.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it, so
0: it's it's complicated to talk
2: about where Iraq is now. I mean I think because it's different from Afghanistan, right? Which is sort of as straightforward a a, a failure as, you know, the taking of Saigon, right? I was compelled by the sort of liberal internationalist, internationalist responsibility to protect related argument for military intervention where there's this horrible dictator who is violent to his own people who is a source of instability and violence in the region and yes an invasion comes at the cost of human life but the future trajectory of iraq under this dictator is not one that avoids the loss of human life and ensures continued suffering and so it will be worth it if we you know, get rid of this horrible person and install a democracy that will in the long term, you know, be better for the people of Iraq. That was the sort of argument that I was compelled by, right? If you think about the sort of vision of a kind of muscular, liberal interventionist foreign policy, think of somebody like Richard Holbrook, right? Uh, That kind of image appealed to me, right? And as well as a kind of field of dreams. If you build it, they will come vision of democracy. Right. And
1: yes, it, it would be fair to say that I don't, I don't subscribe to that view or justification of the Iraq war.
0: Do you find a lot of veterans? Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but do you find a lot of veterans are feel the same way as you?
1: I mean, I think that a lot of veterans have a lot of cynicism about how the war was waged. Now, you, you know, it's 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 interesting. People often ask about the invasion itself, right? And my views of the invasion itself, but the the strange thing about it is that my views on that and how I felt at the time. That was before I was in the military, right? And even by the time I joined the military, it was clear that the war had, was not going well, that the Bush administration's promises were false, that their hopes were false, that their claims about weapons of mass destruction, right, were false, which had never been a big component of, of why I ultimately supported the war when I was, you know, 19 or 20 but so i i joined a military where things weren't going well and it was obvious that things weren't going well and so a lot of the emphasis that i would put on the conversations that i've had with a lot of veterans were often about how the war was waged right they're just incredible failures. I mean, Donald Rumsfeld as a secretary of defense was, uh, it's not correct to call him incompetent because he was highly competent at achieving what he wanted to achieve. It's just that everything that he wanted to achieve was bad and disconnected from the reality on the ground. And, and, And so the war was waged very, very poorly. And then a lot of my concerns as a writer came after I'd left the military and were more about what the war was turning into, right, than with the questions of why we joined. And so I think there's a way in which, no, like we shouldn't have invaded Iraq. But for the entirety of the time that I've been a writer and that I've been in and for the time that I was in the military, the question was not should we have invaded iraq which it seemed like was answered pretty quickly that the answer was no the question was well, what should we do now right and that's a much harder question and i think that it's um you know like i i, I actually support a continued military presence right uh in iraq and in Syria for i think we're fairly straightforward regions. I mean, in 2019, I visited refugee camps in, in northern Iraq, uh, of people who had sort of fled regions of Syria after we pulled some of the troops out there during the Trump sort of partial weird withdrawal, uh, of which there's like a whole host of complications uh, that we could talk about and sort of civil military implications. But, you know, I met with people who had survived genocide and slavery, uh, visited the shattered center of, 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 the old town in Mosul. Um, and you know, I do see that there's a compelling reason to, to have troops there. So, uh, I, I it's, it's not a, a complete repudiation of a mil- American military presence overseas. Right. But nonetheless, a lot of very, very serious sort of moral and practical concerns about, you know, how we wage war, about the oversight of the wars that we're waging and the extent to which they're actually an expression of the public will and the extent to which we're forcing politicians to have to make a public case for war, right? Which is, I think, important in democracy because war is the most morally consequential thing that we do and and it shouldn't be sheltered from our, you know, public debate. Right, people who want to shelter it from public debate often, you know, it's like, well, you know, it's like public debate is fractious and partisan and 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 cynical and and ill informed and all these other things. And yeah, I mean, that's all frequently true of public debate. But I think the history of warfare uh, and particularly of American war does not suggest that there are no deep seated pathologies to um, unaccountable war run by. Run in the absence of public debate uh, and public accountability.
0: You know, uh, I I wonder. You know, given you know what what has happened with Iraq and and what you have seen personally, and how you know your your feelings with the war have have drastically changed as as many people's feelings have. I wonder. You know, someone someone like you who thinks deeply about citizenship and and what it means to be an american. We're recording this just a few days after the 4th of July. Yeah. How does how do you celebrate 4th of July? And you know, what what goes through your mind on a day like Independence Day? I mean, I <laughs> I'm
1: incredibly proud to be an american, you know? And I take great sustenance and nourishment from american history and american political traditions, right? But I think that I think those those political traditions are are diverse and interesting and and, and offer us tools for moving forward and and, and progressing in the future, right? So, a you know, sort of tempered mix of cynicism and idealism is always always helpful. I, I also love kitschy American stuff, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, you great. know, and, and barbecues, yeah, uh... <laughs> uh, barbecues, uh, garden gnomes waving American flags you know all that stuff didn't do it on the 4th of july but because you know sort of in the lead up to uh the fourth sort of not it always stinks when it's like in the middle of the week the fourth like you want the long weekend but you know i took my kids to like a minor league baseball game and and um so their team got to you know my two older kids they're five and seven and their little league team got to show up at at the Brooklyn Cyclones stadium. Uh, we went in advance and took, did some of the rides, the, the roller coasters at Coney Island, and then went to the Brooklyn Cyclones game and their team got to go on the field as they, uh, as the national anthem was sung and they were at second base, you know, facing the flag. It was like a great proud moment. And I love that kind of stuff,
0: you know? That's great. Well, you, you, you talk about, so the, the concept of citizenship in your, your book you talk about it at one point This very important to you in, in raising your kids. Um, you know, I'm also curious, you know, you, sure, what, it's,
1: it's, it's, yeah. it's this thing where I think my relationship to, to patriotism is, is one of it's this very deep responsibility and, and, and duty, right? Uh, it's not like a sort of smugly triumphant love it or leave it sense. I mean, you know, we we're, we're born out of a revolution and and the revolution continues afterwards. I mean, think of somebody like Gordon Wood talking about the radicalism of the American Revolution and how the revolution sparks these Broader social movements that are seeking to inculcate the values of the revolution in a society that is hierarchical and class-bound, and they're trying to break those things down. And that that kind of work, as a sort of continuing process, is part of the American experiment, and the American tradition. And I think a relationship to immigration. I have an essay about that, and is uh, is a part of that. You know, there's, there's also this sort of way in which, you know, the philosopher, uh, Alistair MacIntyre, uh, has this speech that he gave his patriotism of virtue, virtue, where he talks about different sort of conceptions of morality and one in which patriotism is is, is important. And he says, the central contention of the morality of patriotism is that I will obliterate and lose a central dimension of the moral life if I do not understand the enacted narrative of my own individual life as embedded in the history of my country. For if I do not so understand it, I will not understand what I owe to others or what others owe to me. For what crimes of my nation I am bound to make reparation for what benefits to my nation I'm bound to feel gratitude. And so I think that those, you know, those two components are really important, right? The crimes of my nation for which I am uh, bound to make uh, reparation and the benefits of my nation for which I'm bound to feel gratitude. I think it's important to feel both of those keenly.
0: Well, let's because I know our, our time is, is winding down. Uh, I, I really want to talk to you about um, writing and sure. war in pop culture and specifically World War II. Yeah. Because you you write about that a lot and uh, what you call the good war. And <laughs> I'm actually, I'm writing a World War II novel. Uh, well, I don't right call now. it the good war, but yeah. <laughs> well, in your, it's in your book. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, just talk about like World War II. Um, you know, Why is it such a popular topic for American readers? Yeah. What do you think it says about the general public? I mean, it's funny because I, I, I was always a big reader, right? And
1: if you read popular nonfiction of the 1990s in particular, right? It's just like Stephen Ambrose is this huge figure. You know, World War II is the good war and it's the greatest generation. And it's 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 America's entry into as the dominant superpower in the world as a result of fighting a unqu- as unquestionably just war against the epitome of evil, right, in in Nazi Germany, right? And so that's like this conception of, of World War II that is, I feel like, especially ascended in the 1990s, right? Where there's almost like a nostalgia for it because you know the Cold War is over. There's like a lot of material prosperity and no sense of, you know, it's like, has history ended? <laughs> um, and then you, I contrast that with the fiction about World War II uh, that I was reading. You know, you read books like Catch 22 or uh, Gravity's Rainbow, which I actually read in Iraq in 2007, which was an interesting experience, to put it mildly. You know, <laughs> War is like this insane, like mass bureaucratic machine that obliterates human life that's chaotic and absurd and, and, uh, and evil. And, um, you know, these are two different, (laughs) very different conceptions of, uh, of the war, uh, and what war experience meant. And then, you know, I, I, I get my own own taste of, uh, of war when I, when I go to Iraq. And something that you would sometimes find is, is, like, Marines or soldiers who came of age in the 90s like I did who talk about, like, World War II is almost like, like, I wish I could have that kind of a good war, right? Like, I wish I, wish I had a war that I could wholeheartedly, you know, believe in. And one thing that's sort of interesting to me anyway is I have a buddy who's done some reporting trips to, uh, to Ukraine. And so many veterans, including like folks that I know, have shown up in Ukraine seeking to help in some way. Some veterans have joined, uh, you know, the fight. And it's a sense of like, ah, here it is. Here is a, a war with a clear front line against an evil, aggressive military power, right? That commits war crimes that is unjustly aggressing against a smaller neighbor or neighbor trying to take territory and has to be fought back against.
2: Right. And that image of war has this deep, deep appeal. Right.
1: And it's, yeah, it, I think it hangs over American popular culture and over the imagination, uh, imaginations of veterans. Right. Even if you know that the, the actual experience of world war two is totally radically complicated. You know, I, I, I did an event uh, and I talk about this in one of the essays in the book with this uh, veteran who recently died, World War II veteran, Tony Vaccaro. He was a wonderful photographer. He was a fashion photographer for years. He later told me that um, doing fashion photography saved his life because it taught him to look for beauty, right? That the world wasn't just ugly. And when he met me and he learned that I was a Iraq war veteran, he took me to a book of his photographs. His high school teacher taught him how to develop film and he'd taken a camera with him to the front line in the Eastern theater of World War II and he would take photos. So as he went, when they stopped in a town, he'd, he'd collect the materials he needed and develop film and upturned helmets. And he has this amazing collection of imagery from World War II. And, uh, he shows me this photograph of a woman who is, uh, dressed up in nice gear and there's a Panzerfaust, like a bazooka anti-tank weapon by her side and a knife uh, as a corpse. And he explains that he came upon this woman who had been raped and killed. She'd gone out, you know, at the last, this the last day of the war. She'd gone out with a Panzerfaust seeking to, you know, die for her country, right? Since the war was ending. And uh, soldiers had shot her in the gut and then raped her and then um, mutilated her body, right? With a knife. And that was his... That was the first thing that he wanted to tell me decades later, right? Which wasn't his way of saying that we shouldn't have fought the war, right? But that was the memory that stayed with him when I asked him about the greatest generation. He was like this BS, you know, like I met Tom Brokaw, he doesn't know what he's talking about, you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean you're right that there is no such uh thing as a greatest generation, or maybe I'm paraphrasing, but there's great events and then people who are thrown into them. Well, Phil, this has really been a great interview, and thank you so much for, for joining me. My last kind of question here before we wrap up, you write um, towards the end, end of your book, you disagree with people who say war is beyond words. Why, why do you say that, and why is this important? Right. Well, this is a sort of trope that you'll see
1: where people say, you know, I, I could never understand what you've been through, right? Right. Um, Or on the other side, you know, uh, there's a sort of, how many Vietnam veterans does it take to screw in a light bulb?
2: You wouldn't know you weren't there,
1: right? The the sort of idea that war is this ineffable experience that, that can't be communicated. And there's a kind of understandable reason for that. But it ultimately seems to me to be a, a real limit on our ability to connect with other people. You know, a friend of mine who had been in a lot of combat and, and did multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, he once said to me, it really bothered him when people would say, you know, I can never understand what you've been through, right? Because you, you've been to war and he would say, you know, if that's true, it means that my wife and children will never understand what I've been through which means that I can never really truly come home. Right. And I want to believe that something important can be communicated. Right. And the other thing that I think is that we often don't know what we've been through or what we make of it until we try to communicate it to other people. And other people often help us understand what we've been through. Other people who haven't been through the same thing, but might offer a new way of looking at ourselves and our experiences and, and who we are. A I was having this discussion with a woman who had responded to a piece that I've written an essay that's in the book about the experience of watching a Marine die in a combat hospital. And she, she was talking about the piece and how it moved her, and then starts talking to me about her history of child abuse, uh, which was quite severe. And, and she's talking about it and talking about some of the emotions that I talk about in my piece and some of the emotions that she felt reflecting on, on her own experience. And then she says, not that I'm comparing what I've been through to what you've been through. I can never imagine what you've been through which was a strange moment because, as I said, I was a public affairs officer. My deployment is not that hard to imagine. Imagine a lot of long hours at a plywood desk in the desert, right? And every once in a while going out on a patrol or something with an infantry unit that you're briefly attached to. Where she's talking about experiences that are hard to imagine as an adult, let alone a child. And yet she didn't think that there was no communication was possible, but rather she'd read something that I had written and felt that it articulated something that she then wanted to communicate back to me in a new way. And that, to me, is, is the beauty of communication the beauty to a sense of openness about experience across difference, right, that I think is really, really important, right? It's very easy. It's a, it's a temptation to sort of say, I have been through something intense. You cannot understand it. And therefore, I can pontificate about it. I can speak with moral authority about it. I can shut down your attempt to respond to it in moral or political ways because only I have the authority because I've been through it. Uh, but I think that's ultimately that sort of pedestal uh, that we think we're on is, is, is ultimately a box and the, the route towards seeking ways of, of genuine communication and genuine exchange is I think both individually important for the person who is like my friend wants to come home, right? wants their children to be able to have some sense of what they've been through and how it shaped them Uh, but it's also politically important because questions of war are much broader questions than the individual experience of of soldiers and what they think it meant
0: wow very powerful well Phil, what are you working on next? Uh, I'm working on a novel
1: set in Czechoslovakia in uh, the 1970s, because that's the obvious next step for me. Uh, No, my... So my maternal grandfather was the ambassador to Czechoslovakia from 76 to 78, uh, which was... uh, And he also accepted the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of Henry Kissinger. He was the ambassador to Norway uh, when, when Kissinger was awarded that. And so thinking about that time moving from the end of the Vietnam War to representing America in the wake of that, uh, I think, military and moral failure, to be perfectly honest. And then representing that country in, in Czechoslovakia at a time as the dissident movement is sort of gaining steam and and actually responding to American rhetoric about uh, human rights and, and responding to the Helsinki Final Act. And all of these sort of things that wouldn't fit into a realist worldview as being, uh, important in terms of global affairs, but end up having sort of, uh, important repercussions throughout the society, uh, that you can start to see, uh, in the late seventies, uh, is all very interesting to me. And then also my grandmother at the time was asked to pass messages to the underground church. Um, yeah. So there's all sorts of, you know, interesting things. An interesting family, yeah. Yeah. So that uh is feels resonant with a lot of my sort of more contemporary concerns for a whole variety of reasons. And uh so I'm writing a novel uh based on all that history.
0: Wonderful. Well you you will have a reader in me, definitely. <laughs> Thank and you so much. If it's if it if there is war stuff in it, I hope you will consider coming back on the War Books podcast. Uh yeah. Yeah. Well, there yeah. Phil, if people want to follow your work, if they want to stay in touch with what you're doing, where can they? Are you on social media? Where where can they stay in
1: yeah, touch? Yeah, on social media, Phil Clay uh, is my handle, and I have a website. But you know, every once in a while, I Great. write an article or something. Uh, so,
0: <laughs> perfect. Uh, wonderful. Well, Phil Clay, Uncertain Grounds, a terrific book. You know, go buy a copy. Go check it out from your library really some incredible essays. And uh, Phil, thank you again so much for your time today. Thank you.